0: The large groups, they're concerned about air quality nationally. And if air quality has been improved nationally, they believe they've had a win. But you see, for those of us living in neighborhoods, if the air quality has not improved, in fact, gotten worse, then you don't see that as an air quality victory.
1: In addition to supporting the most established national or even international environmental nonprofits, why do we also need to simultaneously support local, small, and community-based organizations? What's the importance of making sure that key decisions, policies, and solutions are made in the presence of people with a diversity of backgrounds? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To check out our limited 2019 Green Dreamer planners created to holistically support all that you do this year, just head to greendreamer.com. Your purchase will also support the planting of 50 trees and the continued production of Green Dreamer. So thank you so much if you get to find something that you love. More on this later along with a discount code just for you. But for now, on to our episode. Let's dive in. Our guest today is the co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit We Act for Environmental Justice. She's got a long history of successfully combining grassroots organizing, environmental advocacy, and environmental health community-based participatory research to become a national leader in advancing environmental policy and the perspective of environmental justice in urban communities. Something that really baffles me is the fact that even in a wealthy country like the United States, people still lack our basic fundamental needs for clean water, clean air, and access to healthy homes and food sources. So I was really eager to learn from our guests' expertise because their work largely focuses on ensuring that the right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment extends to everybody. Green Dreamer, starting off with what inspired her passion for the environment, here's Peggy Shepard.
0: So what sparked my uh, my inspiration to work on environmental issues was when I ran for Democratic district leader in West Harlem, and in organizing and doing outreach to volunteers, I realized that a sewage treatment plant was about to go online, and residents and potential volunteers asked. If I was going to help get people jobs at the plant, we quickly began to when I say we um, district leaders run uh, as a male and female. And so my male partner, Chuck Sutton, we decided to work on getting people hired at the plant and we had 30 people hired. But once the plant began operating, we realized that there were emissions from the plant that were making people sick. So we began an eight-year organizing campaign to hold the city accountable for fixing the plant. We uh, ended up suing the city and getting a $1.1 million environmental benefits fund for West Harlem, and the mayor committed $55 million to fix what was a brand-new plant.
1: So this really hit close to home for you. It was something that you personally were impacted by as well and your community. Absolutely, you know, I lived
0: in the neighborhood. Uh, the the smells and emissions from the plant uh, could be realized all across the community, so we were all affected, and uh, we realized that we needed to hold the city accountable.
1: Was this what led you to co founding We Act for Environmental Justice? Absolutely.
0: So we were doing a lot of this organizing work out of my West Harlem Independent Democratic Club. And of course, I realized that, you know, that wasn't really the appropriate entity, that everybody might not be interested in, in broader environmental issues, and that I didn't want to mix it with um, the politics of a democratic club. So we decided that we should file a lawsuit against the Metropolitan Transit Authority because... Once you understand environmental issues and exposures, it opens your eyes to other kinds of polluting facilities in the community. Mm-hmm. So we began to realize that uptown neighborhoods housed over one third of the largest diesel bus fleet in the country. And so we filed a lawsuit against the MTA to um, that was about to build a new bus depot in West Harlem. So that would have meant out of the six depots in Manhattan, five were all uptown in our neighborhoods. And of course, diesel fumes exacerbate asthma and other kinds of cardiac conditions. And of course, we were also beginning to experience one of the highest asthma rates in the country.
1: And in these instances where you were really able to uh, help drive meaningful change in terms of policy, what did that take? We had
0: monthly meetings of about 100 people. Um, Again, this sewage treatment plant was in the Hudson River across the street from Riverside Drive, which has large apartments. Many of those apartment buildings were going co-op at the time. And so this was right across the street from people's homes. They were very um, impacted. And so it meant holding monthly accountability meetings with the city. It meant training community residents on the the science of air quality and environmental exposures, helping them understand and uh, getting the Mayor Dinkins, um, who came in after Koch, getting Mayor Dinkins to fund a study um, on the operations of the plant so that we really understood what was going on with the plant and what it needed to operate at its best. And again, um, really training community residents. We also realized that um, to gain media attention, that we needed to develop some direct action. So on Martin Luther King Day in 1988, we accessed the uh, West Side Highway, which is the main highway on the west side of Manhattan that almost everybody who lives in New York City at some point takes. Um, we accessed the highway at 7 a.m. during rush hour and stopped traffic to really gain attention uh, to the issue. Seven of us got arrested. We were called the Sewage Seven, and it really was uh, the first time that we got into the newspapers, the New York Times, and really began to do public speaking on the issue um, at every law school in, in Manhattan and uh, really began to raise the uh, awareness of the
1: issue. So it sounds like it was really important to bring people together from a grassroots approach and to really empower the residents to have this piece of knowledge so then they can also voice their opinions.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So with someone unfamiliar with your work today, can you share a little more about what you do at WEACT and the different facets that you guys cover? So we
0: are an environmental justice organization, and the environmental justice movement um, really coalesced around the fact that low-income communities and communities of color were being targeted for polluting facilities, but not receiving Environmental benefits like parks and alternative energy um, options, like solar and, you know, natural gas. And so we realized that we needed to institutionalize advocacy in our community. Low-income communities uh, generally have a lot of social service organizations, but rarely have advocacy organizations that work to hold government or corporations accountable. And so uh, as an environmental justice organization, again, ensuring that that advocacy um, was a part of our community fabric and that we would work to engage community residents in environmental decision-making because we believe that the voices of affected residents are the ones that should take leadership on these issues. So, work on um, a range of, of issues. We've uh, identified 10 or 11 areas that we think really help to develop a safe and healthy community. So, we have identified the issues of air quality, indoor air quality, uh, toxics, open space and parks, zoning and land use, transportation, you know. Safe and affordable transit, uh, which is very important in New York City, and um, good food. Uh, food justice issues have been very important as well. Um, I might have left out one or two, but uh, you get the sense that we wanted to look at the kinds of issues that would create a sustainable community, and that we felt that we could be accountable for. Yeah, and so. Um, At various times, we prioritize uh, some of those issues right now. What we have prioritized is climate change and energy, worker training, which is, again, good green jobs, and uh, environmental health. And so those are the issues that we are most focused on uh, at this particular time.
1: For sure. And you mentioned that these communities are often targeted by polluting facilities. Why is that in the first place? Do they specifically look out for these communities to plan their facilities to be in? Like, how does this happen?
0: Well, first of all, um, communities of color and lower income generally don't have as much information about polluting facilities. They may not uh, vote in the numbers uh, that other communities do. Their political uh, or elected officials may not be as strong on these issues as others may be. In addition, often land is cheaper in some of these communities. You know, trying to site a polluting facility almost in any city is difficult. And certainly that is very difficult in a more affluent community where members may hire their own law firm and uh, go to court to sue. Affluent communities also hire their own PR firms. And in one case in New York City, they even did uh, TV commercials uh, against a transfer station that was being opened on the Upper East Side.
1: Hmm.
0: That sounds very systemic. Absolutely. As, as we know, environmental racism, racism in general, is um, systemic in this country. It is kept alive by our government agencies and often by government policy. A lot of us don't realize that, but when you think about segregation, uh, segregation plays a huge role because it means that low-income communities and communities of color are generally all living together because of segregation. And so, again, those facilities being focused on those communities. um, Again, because those communities are are less informed often about these issues.
1: So in a sense, environmental injustice kind of feeds into systemic racism and systemic racism feeds into environmental injustice. Exactly. Because when you think about
0: segregated neighborhoods, those are the neighborhoods that were redlined by banks. They were redlined by Fannie Mae in terms of what communities are, were able to get um, lower interest mortgages. So there's so many ways that government policy has aided the situations that we uh, now find ourselves in.
1: My next question for you is kind of related, but just wondering, like in a wealthy country like the United States... People still lack access to these very fundamental human needs to be healthy, like clean water, clean air, safe places to live. So how did we get here to begin with? I know there's a lot of history to begin with. Well, we're stuck here
0: because of discrimination, because more affluent communities are able to ensure that they don't get polluting facilities. That's one of the reasons we're here. We're also here because we are a capitalist society, money speaks, and we know that, for instance, tax incentives uh, go to certain kinds of companies to locate in some communities but not in others. We know that uh, some of our elected officials uh, become lobbyists for companies. For instance, we had a, a city council person who became a lobbyist at the same time he was in the city council for the plastic bag uh, manufacturing company. The same person also was a lobbyist for the uh, styrofoam manufacturers, and they were trying to say that styrofoam was recyclable. Finally, uh, a New York state court ruled that it was not recyclable, and uh, that that city council person uh, ended his relationship with the styrofoam company. But again, it's about money. Yeah
1: money is behind all of these things
0: Uh, money is behind a lot of it but also when we look at sustainability today uh, in the trump administration and at the epa so many of the regulations that we have fought for over the last 30 years have just been rolled back in less than six months why have those things been rolled back because corporations do not want to pay extra money to clean up their contamination, or to put in stronger controls on their emissions. That's about money.
1: So how can people overpower that? Because at the end of the day, it's about people.
0: Well, I think we're all asking ourselves that right now. We have not been able to overpower and stop the rollbacks. So we now, um, they're rolling back the methane standard, the mercury standard, They're allowing coal ash to be uh, deposited in uh, waterways in Appalachia. And we're all working to try to stop that through comments, through lawsuits, but we are not 100% successful in that, especially now that we have courts that are being um, loaded with very conservative anti-environmental judges.
1: Do you think ultimately... Money is the biggest roadblock today to ensuring that people can get their fundamental needs to a healthy environment.
0: Absolutely. It is about money. It's also about the quality and substance of the people who are appointed to provide leadership to our government agencies. As we can currently see, more than half of, of the uh, secretaries of our federal agencies have some sort of corruption indictment. That says a lot right there.
1: Obviously, environmental injustice is very systemic. What do you think has been one of the most positively impactful projects that uh, you guys have done at We Act that's been able to help drive some sort of systemic change?
0: Well, some years ago, we organized 400 residents to develop um, their vision for borderfront access because uh, Mayor Bloomberg was investing heavily in waterfront parks downtown, Mm -hmm. and we had a parking lot on our waterfront. And so we organized residents, we developed a vision, we got elected officials to support that vision, and we got the city to hold off on um, letting in a request for proposals for a hotel on our waterfront. And um, we were able to uh, get the city to build a waterfront park which uh, opened several years ago and is a wonderful resource. That's a very, very tangible project that we can, uh, that we can point to. In addition, we had a 24-hour marine transfer station where hundreds of, of garbage trucks would uh, come through our community and dump garbage on a barge to be um, hauled out for, for further transport probably to other communities, and uh, we were able to get the city to keep ours closed. And so that meant that a transfer station had to open on the Upper East Side, which caused the Upper East Siders to file lawsuits, develop TV commercials in order to stop that, but they were not able to, to stop that project, and it is moving forward, and the transfer station is almost complete.
1: Well, it sounds like within this field of environmental justice, it's really one fight after another. And um, I know it's a lot of work and a lot of hardship, a lot of challenges constantly. What is it that keeps you going personally?
0: Well, I think it's um, it's unusual to have a position where you can have a vision and actually realize that vision. It's unusual to be able to provide leadership and support and resources to community residents who can then, um, you know, take that information and those resources and create change in their communities. You know, it's those kinds of outcomes that are the lifeblood for me.
1: Yeah. So really, seeing the constant uh, positive impact and the wins that you're making one after another.
0: Absolutely. And and just seeing, you know, we do things like we have an environmental health and leadership training program that's 10 weeks. And we generally have uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 community residents or members. We we also have a membership. uh, And we're training them in these issues so that they are really empowered and informed. And then we... um, channel them into work groups around climate and energy or healthy homes to help drive policy uh, on those issues.
1: Well, I think more and more sustainable living as a concept is becoming trendy, but also something that can feel exclusive and only accessible to people with certain privileges to begin with. So w- in what ways do you think mainstream ideas and conversations around sustainability might be disregarding the role that privilege has to play in this?
0: I think that very few people in this country really understand their privilege and how that privilege has really sidetracked other kinds of people, you know, people of color, lower income. I don't think people really understand their privilege. I don't think they understand how the system really works and how big money and corporations really game that system. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I don't think people, except a handful, really understand their privilege and try to address that issue.
1: And what's at stake when we don't have the majority of the people understand how the system works and we leave out the voices and perspectives of uh, less privileged, marginalized communities?
0: Um, our policies aren't as good. Let's just take um, the situation with Katrina in New Orleans. When the, the city government developed their evacuation plan in case of you know, storm surge, they obviously did not have a diversity of people at those meetings because they did not realize that most poor people in New Orleans did not have a car to evacuate. They did not realize that most low-income people did not have a credit card to go and stay at a hotel. You can't stay at a hotel without a credit card. These are, are issues that you know the average middle-class person might not think much about, but this is, these issues did not go into the planning. And so you had what you ended up with was hundreds of thousands of people on rooftops trying to be saved and in shelters. So again, if we're not listening to the voices of affected residents, we won't have policies that protect everyone.
1: I feel like at a national and even global level, we're at a point where the people most impacted by environmental issues are often people with the least access or privilege or power. And then on the other hand, the people with the most power, privilege and influence are often people who are most disconnected from these environmental issues. So how do we work with this going forward to be able to put the necessary policies and regulations in place that can help everybody have at least the very basic needs to a healthy environment and home?
0: I think to address the the real equity issues that exist, government has to ensure that they have a diversity of perspectives in all of their advisors or advisory groups, their commissions, that's crucial. I think also that we need funding from philanthropy that wants to fund community organizing is very, very difficult to get money for community organizing. Uh, Most of our organizers are basically subsidized to our policy uh, projects. We have a strong membership of 700 people. At least 100 of them are very active. Again, we need more broad-based community organizing and and membership going on in communities. Most communities do not have a community-based environmental group. We tend to forget that because we look at the big groups like Sierra Club and Environmental Defense Fund and the Natural Resources Defense Council. But none of those groups work at a community level. The only groups working at a community level are the environmental justice organizations. Because the large groups, they're concerned about air quality nationally. And if air quality has been improved nationally, they believe they've had a win. But you see, for those of us living in neighborhoods, if the air quality on 125th Street or on your block has not improved, in fact, gotten worse, then you don't see that as an air quality victory. And nobody is there to help you about the air quality on your block because the large environmental groups that have significant money and staff and scientific expertise, that is not how they work. That is not their business model. And so, again, the only groups working at a community-based level are the groups that are least uh, funded and under-resourced.
1: So it sounds like we can really have national and even global wins on the environmental front that get covered by a lot of media that at the same time don't take into account the environmental injustice that's still ingrained in this picture.
0: Absolutely. You know, we, we've been talking about green jobs and we now have an alternative energy economy, but who will get those jobs? We have to ensure that the underemployed in our communities uh, have an equal shot at, at access to those positions as well. So that's why we're doing job training around solar and other kinds of um, construction activities to ensure that the underemployed um, have the training to get jobs in the new economy.
1: And what can we do as individuals, wherever we are, uh, whatever issues we may personally be affected by, what can we do as individuals to support environmental justice across the board?
0: I believe, certainly we know the demographics of of our country. We are about to become a majority-minority country. If you go to a meeting around an important issue and there are no people of color there, you should speak up. You should let people know that that is not going to be an effective program or project or policy if all of the people who will be affected are not in the room helping to make that decision. Mm-hmm. I think we tolerate elitism. Um, we go to a meeting and there's an important issue, and the meeting is all white, and it never occurs to us that that just is incongruous and that that should not be happening but we don't speak up. And so silence equals complicity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one thing that we could all do and and be an advocate for. We've got to have a diversity of perspectives because it enriches all of our policies and it, it enriches our lives.
1: Yeah, I think people also by nature are more comfortable with voices that just agree with them. And in order to help us really move forward, we need... A diversity of voices that challenge what we may think to be true or what we might think to be helpful to people.
0: Absolutely. But, you know, it's not always that those voices will be confrontational ones. For instance, um, people of color poll higher on environment and climate than white people do. Yet, when there's a climate bill in Congress, there are no people of color there coming to talk to their elected officials because the large white groups believe they can do that on their own. So a lot of times we're not winning on environmental issues because our elected officials look at it and say, oh, it's just those elite white folks. Um, You know, this doesn't really matter to everyone. When in fact, people of color are very enthusiastic about these issues but they're never invited to be part of, of the decision-making uh, or the advocacy around these issues. And again, we have more and more women and people of color uh, in elected office. And believe me, they wanna hear from their constituents. They don't wanna hear from a group of white folks from an elite environmental group. They wanna know that people in their district think this is an important issue. And it was very interesting. Um, There was a point some years back when um, Congressman Rangel from Harlem was head of Ways and Means, which, you know, controls basically, you know, the money in Congress. And every white group was calling me to set up a meeting for them with Congressman Rangel. Well, my goodness, Congressman Rangel had been in office for at least 30 years. Why didn't they have their own relationship? Given all of the people of color we, we have in Congress, why are they never considered environmental champions, even though the Black and Puerto Rican caucus have a 100% voting record on environment, yet none of them are ever singled out as an environmental champion by large uh, green groups? Why is that? Hmm. Why is that? <laughs> well... Um, I, I think it's because uh, people of color are given short shrift, and they are not considered important until they are. Yeah. <laughs> and they are controlling all the resources, and then yeah. everyone is scuttling around to figure out how to get access to that person who they've ignored for twenty years.
1: Well, we greatly appreciate the work that you do at We Act, and. We look forward to continually learning from you and supporting you. So what's next for you that we can look forward to and support? And where can we follow you online?
0: So our website is www.weact.org. We are on on Twitter and Facebook as well. And um, we're looking to scale up our Washington, D.C. office, even though federal policy has been um, It's been more of a resist paradigm in the last couple of years. We now will have a Democratic Congress, House of Representatives, that will be working to understand these issues better. We have a lot of new people, new elected officials there, um, and they will be developing legislation out, may not go anywhere in the Senate at this point, but this is a prelude to when we will have the, the next opportunity to address all of these issues that we care about. But we also have to begin to build our base for 2020. And so we're really focused and committed to working at the grassroots local level with um, our coalition of 40 environmental justice groups around climate change, working to help them develop capacity to make an impact at the state level around climate. Because the states and localities are more advanced in working on these issues than the federal government at this time. So we really want to work in building that grassroots field base as well as uh, creating that opportunity for this important voice uh, from the front lines uh, in Washington, D.C.
1: Before we go into our final five, I wanted to give you a discount code in case you're interested in our 2019 Green Dreamer Planners. They feature our major Earth Awareness Days, 101 Self-Care Reminders, gratitude lists, weekly simple suggested actions to take and cross off, minimalist weekly and monthly planning pages, extra bullet journal pages for customization, and more. And again, each planner contributes to the planting of 50 trees through international non-profit Eden Reforestation Projects. If this sounds like it'd be helpful to you and you want to support reforestation and Green Dreamer podcast, just head to greendreamer.com planners to see our six beautiful designs and use the code greendreamer for 10% off. Again, that's greendreamer.com Com slash planners and discount code Green Dreamer. For now, on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? Uh, I think Grist is a, a great one. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? That one person makes a difference
0: and that through organizing, um, we can create change.
1: What's one thing you do for your health, either daily or weekly? I take long, long, hot showers
0: where (laughs) I have all kinds of new ideas and visions.
1: Um, What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Trying
0: to go to bed earlier.
1: (laughs) What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment?
0: I believe that the communities are the answer and that they will organize themselves and advocate for the change they need.
1: And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? That each one of us can be a leader
0: and that we need to really assess for ourselves where our interests are and really begin to take leadership. Everyone can be a leader.
1: Everyone can be a leader. And that includes you, Green Dreamer, wherever your expertise and passion lie and wherever you can contribute your personal strengths and your unique voice. That's where we need you and your leadership. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable takeaways from this interview as well as the full show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com 105 for episode 105. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and also on our new podcast account at Green Dreamer Podcast. I want to take a quick moment here to thank our reviewer of the week, Jean, G H J K K K. They said, This podcast has quickly become one of my absolute favorites. Not only is it super informative, but also positive and uplifting. The format is amazing, and Kamea asks wonderful questions and has a lovely spirit. Thank you for spreading good vibes. End quote. Well, thank you so much for sharing your kindness and good vibes with me. If you'd also like to support Green Dreamer by leaving a review of what you're enjoying, make sure to also leave your social media username, business name, or name of the passion project you're working on so I can potentially give you a shout out and we can check your workout. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.